You're at work one day and your belly starts hurting. It starts off mild, almost more of a sense of feeling unwell. It grows into more of a visceral, achy pain that seems to emanate from your left side. You wonder if maybe you ate something weird and start thinking back for the past few days, but nothing unusual comes to mind. Uh, as the days go on, you feel a little nauseated, but never really throw up. You go to use the bathroom and have some loose stools. You start sweating and find that you have a slight fever when you check your temperature. You start to wonder what's going on. As the pain gets more serious, you start to think this might be more serious. Could you be dying? You go to the ER where the doctor presses on your belly and pronounces that you have diverticulitis. A nurse comes back with a prescription and says you can go. What the heck? That's it? They're not going to do an x-ray or anything? Hi, and welcome to Sick Enough, the podcast about patients who are sick enough to be in the hospital and the doctors who are sick enough to work there. I'm Dave. And I'm Tyler. And we're hospitalists. We're internal medicine doctors who specialize in treating patients who need to be hospitalized. We work full-time in the hospital, acting as your doctor while you're there, working to get you better and back home. A quick disclaimer, we created this podcast to educate and entertain our listeners. The information we share is not medical advice, and you should always consult your own doctor. Also, please note that we are doctors for adults and are not trained or qualified to comment on pediatric care. Warning, in this episode, we graphically discuss some gastrointestinal tract issues. If you're eating or are easily grossed out, you may want to hold off on listening. While we refrain from using profanity, some listeners may still object to graphic discussions of the GI tract. Dave, I got to say, that introduction you just gave was probably the most unrealistic one you've come up with yet. You, you didn't think that was an accurate description of diverticulitis pain? No, that was fine. I'm talking about it's impossible to escape the emergency room without getting a CAT scan of something. <laughs> I think they were talking at one point about putting CT scans on the doors just so they could get it out of the way as people walked in. <laughs> just walk on your way to triage. Just go yeah, right. Just, just climb into this tube. Okay, yeah. we'll do everything from head to toe. <laughs> that probably would uh, imagine all, you know, how much that would speed things up in the ER. Yeah, it really would. So. Cut down those wait times. Well, I thought it might have been about the description of pain because patients can be kind of weird sometimes when we ask them about pain. More than once, I've had patients get confused or angry or, you know, or just annoyed when I ask trying to get more details about their pain. And I'll say, you know, how would you describe the pain? What kind of pain is it? Is it sharp, dull, burning? And so so many times people are just like, I don't know. It just hurts. Why are you asking me? And I, it blows my mind. I do not understand why people react that way. Today's episode is about a condition called diverticulitis. This is a very common condition, and many people are diagnosed and treated for it without ever setting foot in a hospital. What is diverticulitis? So I think this is kind of where we need to talk a little bit about a related condition first. But as virtually all of us age, we start to get these little outpouchings in the colon. These are called diverticula if you're talking about several of them. If you're talking about just one, it's called a diverticulum. And these little spots are like little sacs that protrude off the wall of the colon. And they're basically these little nooks where bacteria can grow and where debris can get lodged. This condition is something called diverticulosis. And I emphasize that pronunciation because it leads to a lot of confusion among patients. This condition is very common, generally benign, and basically considered a normal part of aging. I think, what is it, 10% of people under age 40 will have diverticulosis but by the time you're age 60, about 50% of people will have it. Like it gets way more common the older that you get. And again, it's generally benign, but it can cause kind of two big problems. 
As you may recall from our episode on GI bleeding, these spots can bleed spontaneously sometimes for kind of no reason. And just as quickly as they start bleeding, they stop bleeding. And there's really nothing that we do for it other than just say, yep, you bled, sorry. So that's problem number one is GI bleeding. And those are, like I said too in that episode, those are some of the scariest bleeds you'll ever see. Yeah. Like clinically, there's nothing we can do about it. But Somebody will like be pouring horrifying. out blood from yeah. their rectum and yeah. And then and they'll then, just suddenly stop for no right. reason. And, and the doctors are all like yawning and saying you're fine and you don't <laughs> believe them. Yeah. The second big problem that it can cause is diverticulitis. And if you remember from past episodes, anytime you hear the suffix itis, that means inflammation. So arthritis is inflammation of joints. Um, tonsillitis, inflammation of the tonsils. Diverticulitis is when one of these diverticular pouches or more than one diverticular pouch gets inflamed. And what basically happens is that when these little outpouchings get inflamed, the narrow entrance to the outpouching can swell shut. And any bacteria or debris that's inside can grow and start releasing gas and basically cause that little diverticulum to blow up like a balloon. And if that entrance stays swollen shut, the diverticulum might grow large enough to rupture or perforate. And this can be really bad. You're never supposed to have bacteria free, freely floating around in your abdominal cavity. It's not often, it's often not quite as bad as other types of, you know, other ruptures, but it's, it can still be pretty bad. So what are the symptoms of diverticulitis? Like if I'm concerned that I might have it, what might we hear? So generally you're going to have abdominal pain and usually it's pain coming from the left lower quadrant. Um, again, our listeners might recall in the last episode, we talked about how doctors kind of think of pain as coming from either, you know, the left lower quadrant, right lower quadrant, right upper quadrant, or left upper quadrant. We kind of divide the abdomen into four, kind of four different quadrants. And then we sort of add on an extra area above the belly button called the epigastrium. But again, generally people are going to have pain in the left lower quadrant, but the pain can be anywhere because it can happen in any part of the colon. Generally, that pain is constant and usually it's been present for days. A lot of patients will have nausea and, and may have vomiting as well. Sometimes they'll have fever. And a lot of patients will have a change in bowel habits, usually meaning diarrhea or loose stools. Some patients will get constipation with it, especially if the bowel, if the lumen of the bowel gets so inflamed or so narrow that it causes an obstruction, people will get constipation instead. And sometimes people will get bloody stools with this, but there are a lot of bowel inflammation conditions that can cause bloody stools. So this certainly isn't the only thing that does that. So how do we make the diagnosis? Like if I'm going to diagnose someone with diverticulitis, how would I go about doing that? So it's technically a clinical diagnosis, which basically means your doctor collects a lot of information and then makes sort of a gut determination, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> based on you know his, his or her best guess. This is a little bit different from a radiographic diagnosis where we would do an imaging test and the imaging test would give us the diagnosis. So again, for our listeners, brain cancer would not be uh, a clinical diagnosis. That would be a radiographic diagnosis or a pathologic diagnosis where we've done a biopsy to to get our final result. But basically, uh, diverticulitis is a clinical diagnosis, meaning it's based on the doctor's best judgment. Yeah, I agree with what you said here. You like to see a CT result. I mean, yeah. It's it's one of these things like the more CAT scans we order, the more we see we should have been doing CAT scans before. Because I feel like so many of these have like an abscess or a perforation involved. Yeah. Which so, you're not ne not necessarily going to be able to detect with the clinical. It is a clinical diagnosis. And there are definitely times where it's diagnosed 
usually in a clinic setting and, and that where that's kind of appropriate. I think for someone who's sick enough to be hospitalized, they need to have a CT done. Yeah, absolutely. The CT isn't just to make that diagnosis. It's really to rule out some other competing diagnoses that could be more dangerous or more scary. Yeah. So speaking of, I think this would be a good time to talk about a differential diagnosis, what that is, because I think we've used that term yeah. pretty liberally here. For our listeners, a differential diagnosis is a list of all the possible diagnoses that we could be dealing with, for example, relating to this symptom. So let's say you have a symptom or a problem, you go to the doctor, the doctor is sitting there in, in their head thinking the list of things that could be, that list is a differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, the doctor will likely rank them in order from most likely to least likely mm -hmm. in their head. And some of that's based on lab findings, and some of it's just based on gut instinct. No, yeah. no pun intended, since we're doing that now. <laughs> uh, then as we ask more questions to ask about the pain and ask about symptoms and ask about things like that, then we, mm -hmm. we can start crossing off or reintroducing possibilities based on the tests and data that come back. Yeah. So the differential diagnosis for this sort of abdominal pain would include inflammatory bowel disease. And these are things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And I know we're planning to discuss these in an upcoming episode. Appendicitis, and although generally appendicitis is right-sided pain. Infectious colitis, so if you ate undercooked chicken and, and wound up getting salmonella or a number of other different bacterial pathogens, that could cause basically inflammation in your GI tract. Ischemic colitis, which is where the colon doesn't get enough blood flow and, and parts of it start to die off because of lack of blood flow. There's also irritable bowel syndrome, colorectal cancer. You know, I feel like if we're if we're talking WebMD here, we can't leave cancer <laughs> off the list. And then there's some other really kind of unusual things or or things that might be more specific to certain patient populations, like ovarian or tubal abscesses, ovarian cysts, torsion, which is where a fallopian tube gets sort of twisted on itself and and cuts off its blood supply. Potentially, even things like kidney stones could cause it. And you know, uh. I would also add to that list um, sugar-free, I would say sugar-free sweets could be another thing that could cause these sort of symptoms. Have you ever heard that heard that story about a friend of ours? Uh, I'm not sure what friend you're referring to, but I've, I've, I've been told, yeah, that sugar-free, like the aspartame and all those fake sugars can can build up in your GI tract. Is that not what we're talking about? That, that's basically, that's sort of what we're talking about. So yeah. there are these sweeteners that get used in sugar-free treat is sugar-free sweets and the sweeteners are generally like sugar alcohols. And they use these because these can't be absorbed by our GI tracts. And so they generally, in theory, should just pass through you without, you know, you taste the sweetness when you eat them, but you don't absorb the calories that come along with them. But the bacteria in your GI tract can digest them and can use them. And so if you eat large quantities of these sugar-free sweets, then the bacteria in your GI tract just have like a colossal rave. Like they just have this crazy party and you get all sorts of GI distress and upset from it. And one of our good friends, husband wound up eating an entire bag of Werther's original oh, God. sugar-free Werther's originals and wound up in the ER that night with abdominal pain. And like, they both thought that he was like dying. It was that bad. And if you ever, if you ever want to laugh, go look online and try and read the, uh, read the reviews for like the sugar-free gummy bears mm. that I think are sold on Amazon. People like will send them as pranks to people that they hate because if you eat them, they will cause you abdominal pain if the reviews are to be believed. So 
I'd even heard it gone so far as to say we some people recommend just eating the sugary gum and the sugary snacks because yeah, it's extra calories, but it's not going to wreck your GI tract yeah. in the way the sugar-free <laughs> stuff has. So it's certainly a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Mm-hmm. I, I don't do the sugar-free stuff for that exact reason. Yeah, I think the the rule of thumb here is everything in moderation. Yeah, and right. if you eat a whole bag of something that's sugar-free, you expect some GI upset. I don't think that the the products are are to blame. I think they're just trying to provide an outlet for people with diabetes. But but you know there is there actually is some debate about whether or not sugary foods are good for your GI tract. And there's some thinking that they kind of feed the bad bacteria in your GI tract and that, that we're learning more and more that the microbiome, meaning the population of, of bacteria that lives inside us, plays a pretty big role in our health and probably a bigger role than we fully understand. So that's that's kind of an area of medicine that I'm personally intrigued about and think that I think we're going to see a lot of diseases may come from disorders of the microbiome rather than you know, and, and diseases that we don't fully understand right now, like IBS or yeah. anyway, that was sort of a, I know we just sort of went down kind of a random path there, but <laughs> no time for another topic. Yeah. So we kind of talked about a little earlier about some complications and why yeah. we both feel more comfortable with a CAT scan. I think about 25%, 25% of patients will develop some complications and thus be sick enough to be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. What are some of these complications? So first one I would say is an abscess, and that's basically a pocket of infected fluid. And abscesses are difficult to treat because white blood cells don't get into them very well. They don't have blood vessels going through them. So antibiotics don't really get into that pocket of fluid very well either. And so these abscesses give bacteria a place to sort of hide and reproduce and grow and kind of continually seed the the rest of the body with, with bacteria. And so a lot of times abscesses have to be drained in order to fully treat somebody, or that may mean that you have to be on a longer course of antibiotics. I would say the next complication would be perforation, which basically is when one of those diverticula pops and it allows bacteria and we'll just say debris for the lack of a better for, you know, to, in order just not to be gross, but it basically allows bacteria and debris to get into your abdomen and into your abdominal cavity. And your abdominal cavity is meant to be a sterile space, meaning no bacteria is ever supposed to be in there. And that's because it also is not very well policed with white blood cells. And uh, it's hard for your body to get substantial numbers of white blood cells in there to treat infections or to naturally get rid of infections. And sometimes when people have perforations, they may have to get, they may have to get literally opened up and washed out. And that's, I mean, that's literally the term the surgeons use. That kind of goes hand in, perforation kind of goes hand in hand with abscess because a lot of perforations will sort of organize into an abscess and an organized abscess is certainly better than a lot of free-floating bacteria that has not organized. So bowel obstruction would be one of the other complications. And we sort of talked about this earlier. If the walls of the bowel get inflamed enough, then it'll close off sort of the lumen. Basically, the it'll close that tube off and things won't be able to get through. And so you'll get a, a, what's called a bowel obstruction. And when that happens, people tend to get really nauseous and throw up a lot. And it's really hard to make that kind of get better. That usually takes a lot of time and it's kind of kind of un- unpleasant. The last one is, I think, one of the more unpleasant ones, and that's a fistula. And that's basically where the bowel sticks to something else that's hollow and then ulcerates or opens up a hole between the two hollow organs. This happens most commonly with the bladder, which can be kind of gross. Imagining a hole opening up between your colon and your bladder 
and you start passing feces through your urine, that's, you can imagine, pretty gross. The other thing that can happen is that you can get a fistula like that between the colon and the vagina as well. So, God, all these things sound horrible. How do we treat all these? Number one, antibiotics. And if you're an outpatient, we're usually going to give you Cipro or Ciprofloxacin and Flagyl or Metronidazole is the, the generic name. There are several altern- alternative regimens, though. Uh, so you may get something slightly different than that. If you're in the hospital, we're going to give you something through the IV. And that's probably going to be Piperacillin slash Tazobactam, which is also called Zosin, or Ampicillin Sulbactam, which is also called Unison. Fluids are another thing because a lot of times people aren't eating or drinking very well. And so we'll give fluids and that can also help support blood pressure a little bit. If you develop an abscess, you may have to have it drained either percutaneously, meaning we put a needle in from the outside to to drain it, or um, sometimes you have to have open surgery to drain it. Odds are good that you'll be placed on bowel rest at least for a little bit. And this will mean that you either have nothing to eat or you only get liquids to eat. Generally, that's only in patients who won't stop throwing up or if there's some sort of a blockage or perforation. Virtually all patients who have this eventually need to have a colonoscopy done. Don't expect this to get done in the hospital. This is something that ought to be done a few months after you've had this. And that's just to make sure that there's no colon cancer that sort of precipitated things or colon cancer causing all of this. And for people who get this over and over and over again, they may have to have the section of bowel taken out where all the diverticula are located. And that can be one of the things that that prevents this from happening in the future. How do we prevent all this from happening? I mean, treating is one thing, sure, but it'd be better if I could prevent all this. I read on Google that eating seeds and corn and nuts and things like that can cause it. Is that true? That's a myth. So that, but that used to be taught. So I think when I was going through medical school and residency, there were still a lot of doctors that were saying, you know, oh, you had diverticulitis. You better not eat any seeds or nuts or else you'll get this again. But now that's largely being kind of dismissed as myth. And I remember my med school rotations, which has gone on eight or nine years ago now, they were just starting to say, hey, we should stop teaching that. Yeah. At least at least that's the first time I heard it. Yeah. Um, so I do think it's fairly recent literature to suggest that that is not related. Yeah. So if you've had diverticulitis, feel free to eat seeds and nuts, but you should also be eating lots of fiber. And fiber is really felt to be the thing that helps prevent diverticulitis from happening. What's the thinking of the seeds and nuts and corn? I think the thinking was that it would get that these are things that don't aren't always yeah. digested and they're going to just like and they would get stuck somewhere and, yeah. and block up one of the diverticula. But I, again, I think that's largely been debunked. Yeah. So but the thinking behind kind of the high fiber diets is that by taking in more fiber, you're less likely to get constipated. And they're thinking that the pressures in your in your GI tract caused by constipation are yeah. part of what makes the diverticula form. I've definitely heard they're still thinking that's true. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, that's about all that I have for diverticulitis. Tyler, do you have anything to add? No, the only thing I was going to add was that snippet on the bit, the end about the seeds and nuts. So that's pretty good. <laughs> a pretty good episode. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, I urge you to hit like or subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Um, I'd also like to thank Alex, our sound engineer, and Michael Coburn and Pixabay.com for our intro music. I'd like to thank Swede Custom Studios and Two Birds Artwork for giving us the thumbnail on our website. If you'd like to email us and get involved, start a Q&A session, send us an email, sickenoughpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-I-C-K-E-N-O-U-G-H-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. And thanks everyone for tuning in. See you next time.